Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. Uh, we wanted to take a moment um, to discuss what's been happening in the world uh, with everything happening in the news from Sean Reed, Ahmed Re- Arbery, uh, Brianna Taylor, Tony McDade, Sandra Bland, Pamela Turner, Karen Gaines, Deborah Danner, Nina Pop. Uh, Monique, Monica, uh, Diamond, and George Floyd, and many more who at the hands of white supremacy were murdered, and will, and we will work with the families who continue to seek justice. Um, this is a time for all of us, especially non-black POCs and white people, to take the time to reflect on our anti-black and anti-indigenous ideologies and practices we hold. I wanted to read a statement from the organization called A Color of Change. So more than 4 million people signed the Color of Change petition and tens of thousands more made phone calls and amplified our demands on social media. Our rallying cry is clear. Black Lives Matter, invest in our communities and defund the police. But we still have work to do. We know that white supremacy and anti-blackness are ingrained on every level of society. And one must hold the enablers who allow the devaluing of black lives accountable for their actions. We're asking you and people to take the following actions to ensure that our voices are heard and that our our justice is won. Uh, Join us and continue the fight to justice by taking the following actions. Uh, Justice for Bree. Demand that officers who murdered Breonna Taylor are fired. And justice for Ahmed uh demand the immediate removal of the district attorneys who failed to bring justice to Ahmed. Um demand for mayor demand mayor uh Jacob Frey hashtag defund the MPD. The Minneapolis police have blood on their hands for the murder of George Floyd and all the people who have been murdered by their officers. The MPD is given a budget of almost two hundred million, which funds their murderous cops, militarized tactics on black communities, and tear gas or protesters. We must invest in resources that help keep us safe and healthy, like affordable housing, jobs, mental health services, and public health approaches to keep us safe, especially in black communities. Uh, we will link all um, some resources, some information, and links on how to take action. I think that it's definitely um, uh, some great news of the Minneapolis uh, school district that actually removed uh, the police officers from the schools. Um, so that is definitely one step. If any of us could do something is to call our counties and start um, asking um, higher ed institutions uh, and our school districts to um, not have police on our campuses. So that's one way. And um, thank you all so much uh, for continually doing all this work and hopefully, um, you know, challenge our, also our family members and our family unit and our friends to start really thinking about um, 
all the ways that anti-blackness shows up in our lives. So um, all the links to all of this will be on the episode um, caption. Yes, thank you, Patricia, for sharing that with all of us. And um, I think it's definitely an important uh, start. And like you mentioned, calling, making calls and also um, donating to uh, organizations that are supporting uh, the protesters and all of that um, is definitely another way if you're if it's within your means. Um, but now we're, I'm excited to um, start um, or introduce our guest for today, and her name is Carrie. Um, a little bit about Carrie. So Carrie uh, currently services a, as a co-op coordinator in the College of Engineering at Northeastern University. Since graduating with her Master of Science in College Student Affairs, Carrie has worked in the Centralized Career Center at Northeastern University in Boston and Sonoma State University. Born and raised in rural Minnesota, Carrie found her purpose while interning at her alma mater's career center at St. Cloud State University. She thrives supporting students, alumni, community members, family, and friends with their career ambitions. In her spare time, Carrie loves to travel and has been to 43 states and 12 countries. She's a natural nature lover and can be found hiking wherever she goes. And when she isn't working or traveling, you can find her at music shows and local festivals. So welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I am grateful for this opportunity. I appreciated the beginning sentiments of this podcast as I'm in Minnesota right now. I am five miles north of Minneapolis, and it's I came here for the pandemic, and now I'm staying here to help raise the voices of those who have been silent. So I have multiple purposes and I'm glad to be able to amplify those voices and find justice uh, in our broken system. Thank you, Carrie. Um, um, today we're, we'll be covering some general career uh, advice in higher education. Um, and I guess given your many years of work experience helping people in the career sector, how would you say that COVID has changed the job market? What are some new challenges that you've seen? COVID snuck up uh, on the employment landscape and employers and higher education institutions across the country. I think many uh, weren't sure what hit them, but when it did, it hit them hard. And we saw this outfall of panic um, for institutions, but more importantly, for the students attending those institutions and those support, those individuals supporting those students kind of fall apart a little bit. And now, you know, that we're three months in, to uh, the pandemic here in the United States that has affected uh, over 100,000 individuals just in the United States alone, we see that the job market has changed within higher education. Universities don't know what fall enrollment is going to look like. We see the CSU system announcing that they will have the academic year um, exclusively online in the fall. We see other universities across the country announcing 
yes, we're going to welcome students back in the fall. Um, and we see other universities saying, you know, we're going to be online for the safety of our entire campus community and the city that we're in. And I find it really fascinating reading different articles in the Chronicle of Higher Education, listening to different vision chats of leaders uh, within higher education and student affairs saying, well, it ultimately isn't even up to the universities, it's up to the governments. And even though these universities' leaderships are speaking to the governments, it's really telling and insightful. And I think as job seekers, we need to be mindful of what the university's response is to COVID. Are they in it and saying, you know, we're welcoming our doors. We want our students to come back. Is that just a plea to get tuition dollars? Mm -hmm. Are they worried about their university closing? Um, or are they embracing the change? Are they keeping people's livelihoods and the safety in mind to create an environment to still live up to their mission? to increase opportunities and education and enlightenment um, for those that they've been created to serve for the past how many centuries. So I think, you know, with their challenges is finding these positions because all these universities are experiencing hiring freezes. It also presents an opportunity where people are realizing, okay, maybe I don't want to be in higher education and that's going to open up job opportunities. But when we think about other industries, right now supply chain is booming. We also see an increase in technology. We also see an increase in research, uh, medical research job opportunities. So when we look at the entire global landscape, high the unemployment rate is higher than it's ever been. It's reaching uh, the Great Depression rates. Uh, but there are still opportunities and honestly, there's going to be creative ways to find employment and things that don't even exist that haven't existed the past how many years mm -hmm. because of this shift. Information is a commodity. And when we think about higher education, what do we go there for? Information to better ourselves, to learn something we didn't know. And that's why when we think about uh, MOOCs and these other online learning technology tools, there's going to be an opportunity to find a new position or fill a need that didn't previously exist. And that includes the retention of individuals that are seeking a better life, who are eager to pursue that degree. And that presents opportunities for individuals that haven't had voice or a place in the higher education system as it historically exists. It's, um, interesting how each you know um how historically we're talking about the job market and the way higher education has uh, worked um, for folks to change careers or increase you know knowledge or change or shift things um in your way that you've seen your role in career services or in the career center career advising what has changed for the way that you speak with students in terms of what you used to tell them? Mm -hmm. and what are you seeing that maybe students should prepare? Is it something different? Is it the same? Um, what's your perspective? Over the past two and a half months, I would categorize students 
feelings um, and thoughts um, based upon those who are scared and frightened that they're not going to receive the same support that they need to be able to succeed in their classes, to be able to learn in the learning style that's conducive to them. So when they go and interview, they pass that coding round if they're trying to go into technology or maybe they needed that guided instruction and the in-class environment is conducive to them. I remember taking online classes and that was not conducive to me. I struggled with that and I knew that I couldn't learn that way. And so I think that's a fear that students are having. Um, and then we have students graduating and they are worried about where they're going to live um, they're worried about this independence that they finally gave, this accomplishment that they finally uh, worked so hard for not seeing the, the fruits of their tuition to apply it and make a difference. Because at the end of the day, we all just want to make a difference. We all want to have a sense of belonging. Um, and it hurts, especially our mental well-being when that need isn't being met and then the other thing I'm seeing with these students is some of them have offers but not all these companies are rescinding them because they're scared there's so much worry there's so much um apprehension that these companies are doing that we teach students not to renege or say yes I'll join a company and then Later, when they get a better offer, say no to that company. But now employers are doing it to these fresh graduates. And so understanding what to do when you're maybe interviewing with two companies, one gives you an, an offer and you're super excited and you go for that company. And then they say, oh, sorry, you know, COVID hit us harder than we thought and we don't have the budget. We are going to have to. Um, rescind and not bring you on, on board you anymore. Well, now you can't go to the other companies that you were interviewing with. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's been a struggle in those ways. And then there's students who can't even get their resume picked up. They're not getting interview calls at all. Um, and that's honestly demoralizing when you've worked so hard and you feel um, but you have so much to contribute. You just want to share and expand and heighten your voice and you don't have a platform to stand on to do that. So I think one of the biggest aspects when it comes to job search is it takes a lot of time, but it takes so much mental effort and initiative. Um, so that's, you know, important to keep in mind. And I, I'm hoping later on we can get into strategies for how to go about that. Now that we're talking about it, maybe you could address like some ways that people can be proactive in the job market as the situation it currently is. When I think um, about where I'm at, so ever since March 11th, I've been working from home, as is any other person that has a full-time salary job, they're working from home. We're all working from home. We're not bogged down by side conversations. Maybe we have family in the space that we're trying to take care of, which um, adds a, another layer that it needs to be factored in. But I have to say, thinking about where do I want to be? What do I want to do? And who's doing that? 
okay, I want to contact that person. I want to reach out to that person. So whether you use your LinkedIn as a mechanism to identify those people, whether you use family, friends, people from your professors, people from your community, people, um, anybody in your network to make an introduction. I can't tell you how many introductions I've made on LinkedIn and through email. It's, it spreads like Wi-Fi, and if you're in higher education, it's a small world. It's a really small world. So find someone that knows someone and ask them, hey, would you mind giving me, um, introducing me to this person? We're in student affairs because we care about other people. So it's it's going to be, um, thankfully, it's going to be hard to find people that won't do that, but they do exist because um, I have experienced it and I have seen it. Um, but the other thing I think um, besides utilizing LinkedIn, utilizing your network is don't be afraid to, because everything's virtual right now, there's webinars happening all the time. Mm -hmm. Join a webinar. If someone makes a comment and it resonates with you, try to find them. See if they posted in the chat box where they're working. Try to search their name. See if you can find them online to send them an email saying, dear Mr. Mrs., uh, I recently joined this webinar and I really appreciated your question or I really appreciated or your comment about this resonated with me. Um, I am, you know, so-and-so give them a little bit of context of who you are and say, I would love to have 20 to 30 minutes of your time at your earliest convenience. Um, next week I have varied availability. So if you wouldn't mind giving me some time, I would love to be able to dive deeper into this topic um, and learn a little bit more about what you do and what types of things uh, uh, you oversee in your current role. Thank you, Carrie, for that, that great example. Um, I think oftentimes, especially in these times, you have to think creatively, right, and, and put yourself out there. And I think it's, you know, not something that I'm inclined to do just naturally right so it's it does definitely just take practice and so I love that sample email you know just um, it helps people understand that it can be a simple email and it, maybe you hear back maybe it takes a while but you can always follow up and I think it's also important to um, understand that a lot of things have changed through this virtual space but not a lot of things have so I think there's some things are still the same in terms of what are some things that students could do? I tell students, it's going to take a while before you start really knowing what you want to do and how it applies to your job. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, unless you're in accounting, something like that, or a nurse, you're going to go to school to learn accounting or nursing to become an accountant or nurse. <laughs> you know, that, that it definitely translates very well. But for other careers, it's actually a lot of exploration and a lot of self-searching and a lot of just kind of like learning as you're going because it's super important to start meeting with folks in your field because every field has their own niche. They have their own way of doing things. Uh, but also keep in mind there's so many variables, and I think that's what scares a lot of people is that there's so many things that could change. There's so many things that are changing. Um, but it's like, how do you learn how to adapt in this world where it took me every semester trying to meet and know people to, for me to really know this is really what I want to do and this is what I want to do 
uh, for eight hours a day, five days a week, or however your setting is in your work setting, that that's going to work for me. Um, if it weren't because of not only speaking and meeting with folks to really determine if this was my thing, because once you start meeting with people, you can kind of tell if this is, you know, the kind of group of folks that you would want to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, the personality, your working style, um, the growth maybe in the, de- in the department. It's really important for people to understand their long-term goals and work backwards. So you can kind of tell what are the steps that you need to do and no job, no person, Especially for folks that are um, either for sure generation, low income, um, have other barriers in place, it's going to be a little bit difficult. Um, and you can even talk to people or even do what we do in this podcast and start seeing their journey. Not all of them are linear and it might just take a little bit longer to get where they are just because, it, you know, you won't know if you like it if you're not in it. So. It's okay to change, and, and it's going to be a process, and I think that's what people get a little bit uncomfortable. Absolutely. You know, our lives are journeys, and our careers are also journeys. And when we think about the environments that we spent maybe the first two decades of our lives in, all we knew is what we saw. And if we only saw... Um, you know, our parents looking for employment where they could find it. Or maybe we saw our parents get a job and they never left that job because they were, it, that job was doing, meeting the needs of the values that they have at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I think what is so daunting is thinking about what is there out there that I don't know and I don't know what to ask to figure out what I don't know. And because of the changing economy and technology and the way the the new this new world of work goes with gig positions and uh, online platforms and blogging and you know obesity and working out and all these different opportunities um, where people find a make a living from how do we go about navigating that. It's funny you mentioned accounting because I studied accounting for two years because my mom told me to do that because that's what she knew because she knew I liked math. I don't like math. I'm just good at algebra, but I don't want to sit behind a computer all day doing that. Um, I don't like money that way. (laughs) And so I think all of us have to go through a journey and statistics show that we as our current generation in our 20s and 30s or and even 40s, we might change our career five to seven times. And that's okay. That's okay for us to do that. I think, you know, the other aspect of changing careers is like, oh, well, then I'm going to need to learn new information to do something new. Maybe, but maybe not. There's so many students that I've advised that, we're studying history and sociology, but on the side, they were coding and they want to find a job where they can build an application that brings these things that they're studying to life for people to appreciate. And I'm like, I don't know any company doing that. And so I think what's important, no matter when, when it comes to career, whether there's barriers in mind of being unknown, uh, knowing so many unknown factors or uh, a global pandemic 
or uh, injustices and inequalities in our society, I think it's important to first look at ourselves, understand what we value, recognize what we're looking for, and to be able to help that guide us into where we're going to be fulfilled and what we're good at and where we can find our voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting how you, how you mentioned, and it brought me back to this webinar that I did about money management where they talk about you know, really reflect on your first experiences of careers. What has your relationship with with careers? Um, and what are some of the things that you instantly feel when it's talking about, like, now that it's your turn to do it, what is bringing up for you? And I see a lot of students right now that they are kind of frustrated and, and kind of like, why can't I fit in this mold? Why can't I just, you know, in that my major doesn't feel right. And I think a lot of it is because a lot of majors should be more interdisciplinary because our life is that way. We don't just think the world in one aspect. We see a lot of things. So I encourage a lot of folks to start thinking about double major minors. Don't think about if it makes sense. Think about what really is that you're passionate about in these fields. And somewhere along the way, the connection will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, as many of y'all folks know, uh, who, are, who have been listening, I was a double major and a minor in undergrad. No one knew how it made sense. And part of me didn't either. But guess what? It totally worked out for me in the long term. And it was actually even better because I was able to see a lot of issues together and, solve, and creatively solve a lot of more problems than most of my peers in those classes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I was uh, a major and a double minor and people didn't understand it either. And I didn't understand that, but I enjoyed it because being able to pursue a bachelor's degree is one instrumental piece of our lives that we can take pride in, that we can hone, that we can own um, as a way to amplify ourselves. Uh, but at the same time, that's our one chance where we can express um, this freedom, but also at the same time rediscover who we are. And so tapping into those things that just bring us joy, it will come out in a way that we probably never thought of, but it's even more rewarding when it does. Yeah, what brings me to, which um, makes me ask you how you found your way through to this uh, role that you're doing like what was maybe can you give us a little bit of um, background story of, around how you got to this position and and why what inspired you to support individuals in this way when I was pursuing my bachelor's degree I was not only a transfer student I uh, changed my major four times uh, and I received a lot of help from the Career Center in changing what I ultimately graduated with, my bachelor's degree in communication studies. And when I was pursuing that, my academic advisor said, the Career Center's hiring interns, you should look into it. So I looked into it, and I said, okay, this sounds fun, and I applied, and I got a stipend. And when I looked at the stipend, I'm like, I think I'm making $2 an hour, but okay, I guess it's fine. 
it'll be good. I'll get exposure. It'll be fun. And so I did it. And within the first semester of me interning there, my supervisor said, Carrie, do you know what you want to do with your major now that you're communication studies? And I said, I don't know. Maybe I'll do event planning. I'm not sure. I haven't figured it out. She's like, why don't you go into student affairs? I'm like, I don't know what that is. And she she smiled and she giggled and she's like, Carrie, that's what I do. And that's what, you know, so many people in higher education say is their aha moments when they realize that where they're at is a potential career opportunity. And when she said, okay, but you're going to have to go for your master's. I said, no school is going to accept me into their master's program. And I just dismissed the thought. I uh, a year prior to that, my first year as a transfer student, uh, you might not know this, Ariana, but I was on academic probation. I was not a good student. I hated my classes, so I struggled in my classes. And they almost didn't let me study abroad for the summer. But I figured out solid study habits. I surrounded myself people who helped me through uh, the rest of my time at the university. I became involved. I lived at the library. Um, and I did more things that helped guide me through it. So when I started applying to grad schools, I knew I needed to diversify my experience. I knew I had to leave Minnesota. So all four grad schools I applied to were out of the state. I was accepted into two of them. I accepted the one that guaranteed paying my tuition. And before I knew it, I started my master's program in a small town in central Illinois where the population was a mixture of central and Illinois uh, rural people and a handful and a large population. The other half were individuals from the south side of Chicago um, and the west side from Palatine, et cetera. And um, there I didn't do much in the career realm, but what I did do there was uh, where I found my ability to be able to advocate and be a strong ally for people of color. I advise the Latin American Student Organization, and that organization is near and dear to my heart, and I'm still in contact with my executive board from my time in doing that, and I became familiar with uh, the various uh, uh, Greek uh, fraternities and sororities um, for those populations of uh no one, the word is dismissing me, but it opened my eyes to people's different journeys um, in higher education and understanding how their voices weren't being heard. They didn't have the resources to succeed in the college and helping them draft those letters to the president, demanding a center for them to be able to come together having a staff member there to guide them through the resources so they could be successful while they were enrolled in that institution um, really helped me be a better version of myself. And before I knew it, I graduated. I went to California. And while I was there, I continued networking. And before I knew it, I had an offer 
from a career center that's been ranked for the past 10 years uh, in the top three by the Princeton Review. So I couldn't turn it down, and that's how I ended up in Boston. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. That's that's provides kind of um, contextualizes what we're talking about, how you know what you said about your our life is a journey, our careers are a journey. So it's just interesting how it all comes together, and here we are. So I guess for the next uh, portion of our um, podcast, uh, we'd like to cover cover general tips for job hunters and higher ed. So um, for new professionals who lack job experience, what are some things that you would recommend that they do to get their first job? One, the first idea, um, and I usually think of ideas uh, one after the other and I get really excited, so I hope I don't speak too fast um, <laughs> so I can articulate all these thoughts. So when we think about entering the workforce as a new professional and when we look at our resume we're like I have nothing to show why would anyone be interested in hiring me I think the first important step is looking at our calendar and seeing where our time has been going our time hasn't been doing nothing we've been doing a lot uh, we have been doing a lot of research um we've been exposing ourselves and hearing different stories about different experiences people have had uh within the industry that we're trying to go into so for higher education we have experiences as a student ourselves we see as recent graduates where those gaps are i know one of the he one of the biggest problems that not only higher education is focused in on, but employers are constantly talking about it too, is retention. We want to retain the students. We want to retain our employees. And maybe universities are doing because once a student finds a community and thrives in an in, in institution, they're more likely to graduate because they have that sense of support and having the resources to thrive. Um, and companies do it because it takes a lot of money to onboard someone and they want to keep them for as long as they can because of the knowledge gained and the understanding they have of the environment and the culture in that in that setting. So when we think about our maybe lack of professional experience, that's one thing. But the opportunities for us to identify areas that we can close the gap when it comes to ensuring students feel supported, they have the resources that they need, that's the angle that we need to come into. So whether you show your voice in a way that you articulate when networking or you show your voice through posting information on LinkedIn. I know higher education is a field that is very active on LinkedIn. People see posts and there are so many groups that you can join on LinkedIn to engage in discussions, to engage or post original content. So I think, A, letting your voice be heard because your experience and your perspective matters. And the other thing is think about what makes you unique, okay? So when we think about resumes, there's an algorithm, RRD, Relevant, recent, and distinguishable. 
Okay. All the things that you're doing leading up to your job search is all relevant. You just need to figure out a way to add it to your resume. So you have your education section. Maybe you have activities and achievements section. Maybe you have a volunteer section. Maybe you have a project section. But you could also have this is my career objective. These are the things that are a summary of my qualifications that make me a strong candidate. And highlight that on your resume. That's going to show how you're distinguishable. They're going to see the recent experiences, your recent degrees, and all of it's relevant. So you just uh, need to find a way to amplify that in a way that feels right for you, whether that's on your resume, whether you're talking to people, whether you're engaging uh, on posts and groups on LinkedIn, or that's how you have a conversation with um, a professor or uh, an ally that you've identified on campus. And if you haven't figured out who that is, that's okay too. It just means that it is important that you remember who you do have and to remain optimistic because they will pop into your life when you don't expect it. Because I believe everything happens for a reason. And I, uh, Ariana knows I'm a cheerleader and I can cheer you on. And you just need to find those people to make those introductions. So you might not feel you have experience, but you have a lot more than that. You have insight and you have perspective and you have relatability. And if you're a person of color, look on any social media platform and employers are begging to hire you. They want to be able to live up to their mission to see that they are proudly uh, diversifying their employees. So they're looking for you. Just help them find you. Yeah, and I think it's, it's I, I really liked what you mentioned. It's like uh, when I meet with students who are like, I don't have that much experience. I'm like, you navigating higher ed is experience. Mm -hmm. So if it's your first position that you're thinking about, you really have to do some sort of reflection and feel really comfortable on the spot to speak on this in a quick, you know, short, condensed way of um, I had experience in this program or as a transfer student, as a first time freshman, as a commuter. These are like definitely experiences that you can leverage and say, I think there's an opportunity to make things different or um, ways to continue doing good things if, if it's impactful. Um, for new professionals, let's say they had just assistantships or student, student positions on campus or they didn't have any at all, what are some things that recent college graduates could do to apply? What are the positions that they should look for if they're thinking about applying in higher education? Um, like, let's say for a community college, how is that different for a four-year university if they're thinking about entry-level positions? Mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting because I think COVID is changing things, but so there's going to be opportunities for uh, universities to actually hire more people to help with online facilitation. So 
if they are offering online classes, there's going to be a need to ensure that students are feeling that sense of community and support and representation. So when we think about how to approach, you know, what types of positions, I think when we consider two-year schools, um, two-year institutions, and four-year universities, we can think about those entry-level positions. So residential life, there's various positions that entry-level individuals with no experience go and work in residential life. Uh, academic advising typically will have opportunities for individuals who might not have their master's degree to get experience as well. Uh, we also see some individuals who are working in orientation or even perhaps uh, in the, um, the first-year experience offices. So uh, because of the retention or what do I want to call it? Because of the drive to retain students, there's these new departments and offices for first-year students and second-year students, and they're looking for uh, individuals who would be able to provide those fresh creative ideas for how to come up with innovative solutions to creating resources for students who haven't felt like they've belonged or they can succeed in that environment. And so I would consider, you know, those traditional avenues. But if you find yourself really your strengths aligning, that you could be uh, an assistant in an office in some capacity or a coordinator level position in a capacity, you could definitely start out with that type of role, get an understanding of it and see where it takes you. Uh, I have a friend who just um, right before COVID happened, start his position at a two-year school as an academic advisor, and they doubled their amount of academic advisors because they wanted to ensure students felt that support, and he is the only person on that team that uh, has that uh diversity factor applied to him, but he's, all of his other new colleagues, none of them have a higher education degree or any master's degree at all. And so I think when it comes to supporting students in a higher education environment, it's just important that you find your voice and be authentic to your voice and realize that your voice is unique and you need to hone in on that uniqueness because we're in need of something new. We need something refreshing uh, because the old ways aren't going to work anymore. Um, and from my experience working in the Midwest and on the East Coast and on the West Coast, that's also something that's so important to keep in mind. In the Midwest, things are very slow to change um, when we think about the West Coast, the West Coast is all about the creativity. Let's take some risks. Let's let's give it a try and see how it goes. If it doesn't go, that's okay. We're going to learn from it. Um, let's just give it a try. Um, and you see that in and outside of higher education. But when we think about the East Coast and the Northeast, they are very 
narrow-minded when it comes to innovation um, unless they believe that they have facts and experiences and data that proves that the opportunity outweighs the risk when they do their SWOT analysis. So um, my advice is to not only consider the different avenues of what departments or what type of role it would be in, also think about geographic location um, and what the needs might be of that institution, understanding, okay, is this an institution that, who, who, who's the compromises the student body here? And finding a way to navigate that and keeping that in mind as you position yourself too. There's one aspect of relatability that can make you a differentiator. But then there's the other aspect of showing that you are strong-willed um, and showing your integrity. And those, instead of, I'm not going to call them soft skills because those are your power skills. Mm. That's what you're going to tap into because that's what comes to second nature to you. I guess um, a question that I that comes to mind when you were talking about the different ways that you can get into higher education, I think there I remember from when I entered the higher ed from a nonprofit the nonprofit world, um, I started as an academic advisor and it gave me that experience um, into working with students and um, advising them in their you know, when they were exploring their career options, um, but from the academic side, so like their majors, like I think what Patricia is doing right now. Um, and I found that very, I, I enjoyed that because I, I I could see myself in their shoes. I could see themselves like trying to figure it out and, try, and trying to find their path, but not like, like what you said earlier, not knowing what they didn't know. And so... Um, Patty, do you want to share your anecdote about how some people enter the these roles in and what you've learned um, recently in your position? Yeah, I think it's um, interesting once you kind of I'm, I'm serious like this is where you need to network and really get to see what are the patterns within your field and um, at my job uh, during my onboarding process, um, my supervisor or my um, lead um, training um, advisor is uh, required all of us that are new to interview every single uh, colleague in, in the center. And it was really interesting how everyone kind of got into the role and how important it is to talk to people and network with people in the field that you're trying to get into um, so you get more insight of what are the patterns what are the ways what are the opportunities that exist and for the most part a lot of people especially in student affairs if you're thinking about working in higher ed a lot of people say res life and uh, the working in the registrar's office or in the enrollment uh, will help you go into different fields in higher ed from that is because you have to know a lot of the services and connect students and um, refer them to a lot of other services on campus. So um, now there's more like peer mentors or peer advisors um, on campus that is another role where a lot of people end up becoming academic advisors. What was interesting is hearing mm -hmm. as a first-gen student, seeing how other folks are paying their master's. So let's say you graduate from your bachelor's and you're kind of unsure 
not only if this is really the field that you want to go into, don't have that much work experience, um, and can't afford to pay for uh, for a whole master's. What I learned was that so you have your bachelor's and you get an SSP one position. So what that means is student affairs is ranked in different levels. So SSP is one is usually entry level positions. SSP two and then SSP three. SSP three is more management um, or supervised people in a, in a capacity. It depends on each institution. Uh, it depends on the department, but oftentimes that's usually the levels. So the higher you go, the more pay or the more responsibility. Um, some advisors with limited experience should look for SSP1 positions. And if you are on the state side, meaning you're not working for an auxiliary or a third party uh, vendor or something like that on the institution, you could actually, from the CSU, um, if you're a full-time employee, you can get tuition waived for six units or half of your units get paid by your employer. So if I was thinking about doing a master's or doing a second master's or in my position, if I wanted to do, let's say, an EDD within the CSU system, you could actually work and pay as you go. Um, that's one way. Um, in my way, um, the CSU uh, for Fresno had the state university grant that paid for low-income folks their tuition, most of their tuition. Um, so if students are kind of thinking about what are my next steps, uh, I'm unsure what to do, I would really recommend, you know, starting with those entry-level positions. And you can kind of decide whether it works for you or not, um, your for your long-term goals. Um, but those are really great ways to start thinking about, you know, what are my next steps? What are my next stepping stones? And how can I also leverage some of these really great full-time positions um, that, you know, like you don't, it doesn't require a lot of, you know, what you would traditionally think as having a master's. Absolutely. That's so true. And I think about one of my colleagues, former colleagues, he started off as an administrative assistant and he continued working as an administrative assistant while pursuing his master's. He thought he was going to do his MBA and he ended up doing his master's in leadership, organizational leadership. And then he got promoted and he started working in a full-time salary capacity and now he's fully utilizing his master's degree, loving his job. Um, and he just got married last summer and he's, you know, moving on, continuing to try to live his best life um, that we all strive to do. But he had to start off, you know, working in that administrative assistant role. But while he was there, he met so many people and he was able to make those connections network from just sitting behind that desk. Um, that allowed him and kept him in people's minds when new job opportunities rose, um, came up in the department. And I've also seen uh, at the community college level, they sometimes um, new recent graduates end up actually getting a job at community colleges. The structure and the environment will be definitely different. So it depends on which community college, which department. Um, for my colleagues that I've known, some of them don't work well if you're like thinking about doing something different. So that might be at the four year level. 
Um, and also the UCs and CSUs have very different structure, especially across the, the, the world. I found that one, there was this one academic advisor I had connected with at USC who mentioned actually the U the CSU has pays you way more. So you want to see like also institutional type just because it's private doesn't mean that they will pay more for positions and just to look at, you know, what are the things that match the institutional type, the pay, the position and the working environment that you would like in that department? Uh, what's the working style? And uh, I wanted to ask you, what are some of those questions that you could pose during job interviews to learn about, you know, either some red flags or to really get to know the employer as I'm trying to push more people to think about job interviews as a way to for you to interview those 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 places. Mm-hmm. I have to say one of my favorite questions is asking if it's like if it, it doesn't matter if I'm in if you're interviewing with one person or three people or five people, but asking them, so what do you like about your job? Uh, can be very informative because if they all look around and look at each other, read the nonverbal signs, read the tones, uncover and try to disseminate the tone or what type of stories or how in depth or the inflection of their voices when they talk. Uh, the other thing uh, that I just literally saw yesterday or today was for all those job seekers, don't hesitate to ask, what was your campus's response to COVID, A, um, which can be very informative for how they went about communicating and acting um, and initiating their plans to their employees and their students. Um, one of my uh, connections is the vice president of a university out in Mid-Atlantic University and they literally packed up students' things and shipped it to the students. They told them not to come back from spring break. They didn't want the students to come back to ship, to pack up their own things. The residential life team packed up those students' belongings, and the university shipped them to the student, no matter if they were a few miles down the road or on the other on another continent. Um, and so I think asking, you know, what was your university's response to COVID, but then also saying, how did your university respond to the recent protests? Uh, that's also uh, very interesting because there's some universities that are under a lot of pressure because they're sayers, not doers. They walk the walk um, or they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. What they say and their actions aren't aligning. Um Typically on other terms um, and other uh, contexts and various other factors, I think it's always good to ask, you know, how would you describe your office culture when you think about uh, celebrations of different holidays or people's birthdays? Does your department do anything? Um, how would you describe the interactions um, of the student population that you serve? How would you describe the students that you serve? It's also very interesting to hear how some professionals describe the population that they're there to support, um, the way that they might call them kids or um, 
any other uh, term that might seem demeaning or diminishing of someone's identity uh, is also very informative and telling. So asking questions to get them to open up and share about the population that you're going to be supporting, uh, the individuals that you're going to be working side by side with, but then understanding the leadership of the university and the type of structure and operations that it runs as well. Yeah, I think another um, set of questions that I like to talk or ask them, especially even if it's entry-level positions, I think it's really important to ask them, what are the professional development opportunities in the position? Um, are they opportunities for us to go to conferences? Would that be paid for by the department or memberships that we could be a part of? Um, another one that I ask is, um, what do you see this position doing um, or who? what are you looking for in, in the next person coming into the position and what would you like mm-hmm. them to do? Uh, what are some things that um, students get involved in? Like, what does the feedback look like in this department? Um, is it a 360? Is it half-year feedback? Is it just until, you know, I don't know, at the end of the semester? Like, who do I report to? Um, all those lines of communication and collaboration will tell you what the work environment will look like because... Um, that could mean a lot of different things. I always personally, um, in this past job search, I look at who is in the search committee, um, who is involved, um, who's the main person, and what kind of questions they are asking, because that really lets me know what they think is important, but also it's important for you to let them know what you think is important. And to really get to the bottom of, is this a really safe working environment? For someone like myself, or does this align with the values that I have? Oh, completely. Yes. I'm like over here shaking my head saying preach. Exactly. Yes. I love those questions too, because I think when we read a job description and we envision ourselves in that environment, it's helpful for us to disseminate and understand what's this job description telling us, but then also ensuring that what we're finding out in that interview aligns with that job description so we don't accept something that isn't what we thought we were accepting to do when it comes to job responsibilities and expectations because that bottom line of other duties as a sign can be stretched in those unethical working office uh, working spaces yeah and also like um I found it interesting because I had a, a search committee. The way that they were showing information, the way that they were uh, um, making or scheduling the the interview, things like that, or even the process of like, what do they share during the time that you're waiting for that interview to happen, or what are the presentations? Is there a second interview? Like all these things, just kind of lets you know: is this working environment? where I'm going to be doing everything that my supervisor would want me to, so I'm doing their job, or is it going to be actually much more streamlined and a healthy balance where I get some growth and some challenges, but also it's not something completely um, different from what I thought I signed up for, Um, just because it gets kind of murky once you end up seeing like, oh, this isn't really, there wasn't an agreed upon thing, 
Um, and for your experience, when it comes to negotiating and you're having a conversation about, okay, now I have the offer, what are some things that you tell students of the ways um, in which they could either leverage that opportunity or even thinking about telling more students and normalizing more people to negotiate during that time? What could they negotiate? And negotiate everything that you can. <laughs> um, but let me uh, take a step back and say, know your worth. When you apply for a position, sometimes it'll say pay grade so you can look up. Uh, higher education is known, especially if they are public, if they have all those documents uh, open for public access for you to see the range of the salaries for people currently working uh, in that uh, institution. So my first advice is do your research. There's so many um, glass door. Um, there's various, uh, I'm losing it. Oh, uh, like MCPA and ACPA, these uh, student affairs and higher education professional associations have resources to calculate salary at NACE, the National Association for Colleges and Employers, has a salary calculator as well, where you put details and information, and it gives you that range uh, of what you can expect when it comes to uh, your salary for a position. Typically, universities are very standardized in terms of the entire compensation package. That's including benefits. It's standard health, standard uh, 401k and retirement plans. Um, it's standard what the opportunities for tuition reimbursement options are, um, those various other aspects. I mean, you can pick your plan within the options that the university is providing. None of that's too negotiable, but I think one thing that people can negotiate that they don't necessarily talk about is you know, I'm coming into this role and um, let's say it's uh, a level two role and you know that you are currently um, working towards something that would boost your value. So you can say, you know, I really um, am excited about this opportunity and I would love to have a conversation about what it looks like for uh, to uh, be bumped um, of a classification. But I would also like to have a conversation about the history of individuals' titles being changed or accelerated, whether that means employee uh, salary changes as well or not, even getting that title change to a title that has a higher classification. So when it comes to your next move, your resume and your title is representing the work and the initiative and the changes um, and the difference that you made for that student at that institution. So 100% do your research. 100% uh, don't hesitate. And I think, you know, there's so many workshops that the ACLU will do, um, various organizations will do for you to ensure that you're receiving the pay and the compensation that 
you are justly entitled to. So I know sometimes we get an offer and it's $50,000 and I'm thinking, how am I supposed to live in California on $50,000? Uh, I'm going to have to get a second job. <laughs> and so that's um, something that is hard to balance and recognize. And so using your voice to say, you know, I was thinking about this aspect. You mentioned it was uh, a critical component of what you were looking to achieve and the university uh, mentions it in their strategic plan, um, their academic plan for the upcoming years. I really have lots of ideas and I'm excited about implementing them and I want to make sure that I have the resources um, to do that, but if I am not receiving the compensation, I'm going to have to get a second job, which is going to uh, take away from the focus on where I know that we can ensure change and a difference to achieve the goals that we're all here working diligently to exceed. And so I think there's like a, a rhetorical way um, in via conversation to bring up salary. Um, and it's kind of funny because I'm glad that this is a podcast so people can replay it because students will come in and they're recording our conversations because once I say something, I can never think of it again, what I just said. But I always say for salary negotiation, if you can do it verbally, do it verbally. Doing it writtenly doesn't usually come off as strong and um, it can seem passive and sensitive and when higher education and student affairs is feel is full with people who make decisions based upon their feelings, I think the tone of your voice and the way that you present yourself with your poise and professionalism and demeanor, it, it has a stronger hold verbally than writtenly. So don't be afraid to send an email saying, you know, I really appreciate you calling me on Monday. I'm really excited about the opportunity uh, to join the Adocu Resource Center as a coordinator. I think that the initiatives um, that you are trying to amplify in, to your students are fantastic. I would love to follow up with you. Um, at your earliest convenience to kind of talk about some of the details that you mentioned in terms of compensation. If you want to have a preliminary conversation prior to um, our call with your supervisor, please feel free to do so. But I would love to see what we can identify is a salary that will measure the value that I bring to your organization, to your department. And then say, you know, offer sometimes, feel free to call me um, at my cell phone number and I'm free next week, Monday and Tuesday throughout the afternoon. Um, I look forward to hearing from you and further exploring what this job opportunity holds. And then when you get on the phone with them, I think, A, reminding them of all of those amazing strengths that you bring to the table and then keeping it in a very transparent conversation and be prepared if they ask you, well, are you interviewing with other places? Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Just be truthful in that. Um, 
And the other piece is always aim a little bit higher because if they do meet you where you want to go, whether it's, you know, you say, well, I know you offered me 50,000, but I really think 57,000 is a more realistic, um, compensation for this type of role. They can say, okay, well, I can't go anywhere more than 52 or 53,000. Um, and so I think that middle ground is fine and say, okay, well, I appreciate that. But is, um, the other question I have is I'm curious if you have a work from home policy, is there, is it possible after my first three months of onboarding, would I be able to do work from home one day a week? Um, is that will kind of help alleviate some of the transportation costs involved with me commuting to and from the office. So think about those things. Usually like work from home days, personal days, sick days, um, family um, time off. It's up to the department head uh, to distinguish what is considered in that. I was able to take a week of family leave when my sister had a baby. <laughs> And that was PTO that I got to take that didn't cut into any of my vacation time. And I wasn't expecting that. And I didn't ask that in the interview. But I think, you know, having an understanding of what the values are of those that you work for, they value family. And they knew that I wanted to be there to help my family. And they supported that. Yeah. And I think it's it, it was interesting when, when you're looking at positions in higher ed where there's a union and there is certain, you kind of have to, think about that too um in the context of what institution you're going into uh when i spoke with some of my mentors they said when you i know you want to do a salary negotiation which you should um just to make sure that people know hey this is like see how they react to that um the conversation the way that i led it into this position was more on I'm moving from this place to this place. I know traditionally moving cost or, you know, a stipend or things like, or a bonus is usually just for faculty, but is there any for staff? I am in need of movers during COVID-19. There is not, I, I know that most of us maybe are like, oh, well, I, I'll do my move, whole move in just myself. Let that aside, if you didn't have to worry about this, what are the easiest ways to be onboarded into this new location? If you're moving or something like that, ask them if there is any movers or any resources for staff. Um, as it's more traditional, again, like in faculty. And when I spoke to the person um, who I was negotiating this, they mentioned your salary is actually the highest rank that we can based on the union agreements. So that's something good to know because they might not, have then you can see what is the value that your employer is putting on you having a good start and also the second one the person was like oh i understand that this is i don't know if we have any of those resources than the staff and they decided to talk with a dean and the dean gave me a, a bonus for my first check uh, although it's going to be taxed it was still a great you know resource that if i had a not negotiated in some way in that those things then I would have known. You could also negotiate maybe, uh, is your department going to provide staff uh, a laptop or um, some ergonomic stuff for your desk or what are some adapters or connections or a second monitor that they can provide you? Things like that would be helpful. Think about how can you make your job easier? How can your environment, working environment will be, especially if you are working from home? Mm -hmm. 
And the other thing that you mentioned earlier, too, about when we ask questions in the interview about professional development, ask them, you know, I was wondering if there is a professional development budget for me as well as I'm uh, eager to be a lifelong um build a, a life and a career in higher education and so professional development is at the utmost so what are those options and they might say well in your first year we can't promote anything but on the second year we send you to a conference or the second year we pay for your $1,400 certification in this um, and just advocate for that and don't forget about that when they make you that promise uh, make sure they hold true to that because if you don't advocate for yourself to make sure it's upheld, that they're just looking at their budget too sometimes. So when they're, when employers say that, oh, we can give, oh, we're giving you $50,000 or, you know, and that includes this competitive um, insurance package, health insurance package, but that's, already supposed to be included as part of your um does that make sense yes yes um, basically that employer is trying to use rhetoric they're trying to use their words to help make the sale like they want you they're giving they're offering you the job because they want you and so they're gonna say in whatever type of sales manner that they need to say to help you feel like you are the luckiest and that you're so fortunate to be offered this type of position with the salary and you won't have to worry about medical bills and uh having to contribute um, a matching pension plan or retirement account because it automatically accumulates if if um, that's what the institution provides but i think don't accept it show appreciation for it but also don't let them silence or assume your knowledge about what you know is justly and rightly yours so you could say, yeah, I saw on the website, you know, each employee is provided with this competitive medical package with options. And I think I, I will greatly benefit and that is a value add and something that will help me um, in my livelihood. Um, but I would love to see what other types of accommodations can be made in regards to um, how uh, uh, my credentials and my experiences are going to amplify the presence that your department is going to have on this campus mm -hmm. um, because of the contributions that I'm going to be providing to your students. And I think it's important to kind of follow your, your intuition and your gut to see like what some of the responses are, how are they meeting each of your, each of us, our needs are very, very different. So it will, it all depends on what you're looking for, if it matches and also, um, kind of like what your what the response is to that negotiation because once you kind of have a feeling of everything that you've been exposed to through the job search through the interview through 
the negotiation through the communication will kind of let you know if this is some place that you you would want to work with and that every student you know you can still create a lot of opportunities for yourself in many ways you just have to make sure that you are in connection with with a lot of different folks too to help guide you the way and especially there are a ton of research it's just hard to know where to find it in the internet while there's you know you can do a google search or just a whatever search engine you have but it'll be very difficult to disseminate what is real and what's not um what is helpful and especially on tiktok um there's this one person i was looking at that, that said you know you can grab your internet and uh your word document look at the job description copy paste put in white inside your um your pdf to so search engines or search software could find your your resume and things like that you know making sure that you understand like what are the consequences of things like that um and maybe you don't even know how the hr process works mm-hmm. so try to be as genuine as possible it is a little bit difficult uh, in general the job search and just negotiating and all these things these are very difficult these are very uncomfortable but it doesn't mean that it's not possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think it is possible. And it goes back to our conversation earlier about understanding what we value and having that written down, written down what you value, what are you looking for in this next job opportunity that you're seeking. And when you receive that offer is what this opportunity will give you aligning with your values. I remember having a young female student in my office in tears feeling devalued and just respected that this employer is offering her a salary that is unfair and they they felt so hurt that they didn't recognize the impact and the success that she would bring into the role that they would offer her such a petty salary. And that can take a toll on our mental health too. And I think, you know, all of us can, you know, say, yeah, this one time I tried to, uh, um, negotiating my salary. It didn't work out. I tried again. It didn't work out. I, you know, that was how my first two jobs were. I tried negotiating my salary. First one was grant funded. The second one, they said that's all they had in the budget. And so I think over time, like continuously hearing that takes a toll on us. But then also when maybe it aligns to all of the other things that we value that we're looking for in this opportunity, it just hurts because we know that we are capable and we know that we deserve so much more. So in that in the scenario of the student that uh, I was supporting, she ended up taking the job, but she made a promise to herself that she was going to work her network there because it was uh, an organization that had a strong name to it. It was an opportunity for her to network. And her entire time there, she made a promise that she would not stoop down to the level of integrity that that company created for themselves based upon the way that they compensate their employees for her to alleviate her voice, her platform, her self to ensure that the next move that she made, she 
is going to feel good about what she did and made happen for herself with the support of those that she connected and guided her through it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for sharing all this information and that I hope that our listeners just get a sense of um, some reassurance, some tips, and also we'll include um, some resources again in the caption uh, of the things that helped us in our in our journeys. Um, is there any last words or things that you would like to share before we close? You know, I've been doing so much reflection lately that I typically love the opportunity to help others. I love the opportunity to be able to open windows and find and create those doors for people to walk through. And Ariana knows because... I don't know how many times I've reviewed her resume. She's reviewed mine, too. Um, she's connected with me with people so I can give them feedback on their resume. And I take a lot of uh, pride in supporting those individuals. And so my advice would be to know your value, know your worth, know that you're resilient, remember that you're strong, remember that you have uh, amazing network of people, your community, that all can play a factor and be a contributing piece to your success. So allow them to join you on this journey. Tell them what you're experiencing. Enlighten them on what you've learned, how what you've discovered. And remember your resources. I know what, from my experience, I had an amazing career center at my alma mater. Um, I didn't have an amazing career center at, at grad school. And I know that in institution to institution, it's a varying degree of individuals that can provide you the guidance and the support that you're looking for. But just remember that we're out there. We're here. We want to hear you. We want to support you in every way that we possibly can. And if you don't feel like you're putting yourself out there, make yourself uncomfortable sometimes. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay to feel daunted. It happens all the time in life, whether it's career or hiking related. If you have a hard time climbing that hill, Ask someone, come down here and take my hand and help me up the hill. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, that's literally and sometimes that's metaphorically, but that's what we need to do. We need to continue to walk hand in hand, lift each other up and strive for more because we deserve it. Yes. And with that. That's a great ending. Thank you so much, Carrie, for your time, your input, and your willingness to share all your great tips and your expertise with, with our community. Absolutely. I would love to come back another time because I know there's so many more <laughs> topics um, revolving around career and job search and transitioning. I could talk about this for hours. So <laughs> um, I'm happy to join uh, at a future date as well. This week's 
POC business shout out is Comfy Sorts, handcrafted chunky and jumbo blankets that you can find at comfysorts.com. They are owned by two black women, two besties who fell in love with crocheting, who decided to share their talents with the world. Comfy Sorts has locations in Virginia and Florida. They offer a variety of handcrafted chunky and jumbo blankets made from Chanel yarn, 100% merino wool, and cotton. Founded by Latasha and Siobhan, two besties who grew up together in Huntsville, Alabama. After spending years playing with Barbies and climbing trees, they each went their separate ways onto two completely different paths. So many years passed before they reconnected, but when they did, it was like they never left each other. Although so much had changed between the two, one thing they both had in common was their love for crocheting and passion for entrepreneurship. Go to ComfySorts.com and get your 10% off on your first order. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.